Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Gary, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. It's been a couple months, but how have you been, man? I've been good. Been busy, just uh, riding away. You got this new book coming out, Operation Mockingbird, which we're going to be talking about. Um, but I have to ask you, because you just said this off air, now I'm it's just it's just got to happen. But you've done a couple speaking engagements at the Florida Villages. You got to tell me what that experience is like. Golf carts on every corner. Uh, well, it's a huge place. It's over 100,000 people, and it covers three counties in Flo Central Florida. Um, and uh, I guess the the funniest thing to me is they they brag that their average age is like 62, 64 years old. Um, the last engagement I did, I had 203 people there, and I kid you not, Robbie, a third of them were either in wheelchairs or on oxygen masks. <laughs> They can claim their average age is early 60s. It's more like 75 to 80. Uh, you know, the, the joke around here is uh, they call the villages heaven's waiting room. <laughs> oh, my God. I was reading their website and I was I, I was on air. I was reading it because my buddy did not believe this place existed because we were going into that. They use loofahs to kind of color code what, like because they swing down there. And we're we're rolling through, and they showed their bingo hall. They were showing all their like amazing attractions. They showed the golf course and everything, and the bingo hall. And they were like, "Yeah, there's ex CIA retired agents that are there." And I'm like, "Somebody there knows who killed Kennedy, a hundred percent." There's one person hiding out in the villages that has it all in their head and just waiting for some young buck to come ask them. Yeah, they're, but they're probably so old they can't remember it. <laughs> See, that's the good part is sometimes you get the sliver of truths that come out, like when they have one of those moments and they totally forget that they sign like an NDA or something. Yeah, well, you know, they uh, it also has the highest rate of uh, sexually transmitted diseases in the state, too. I mean, that was that before there was condoms. Do they not know they exist now? Well, at that age, I guess they figure, well, they're not getting pregnant. So what's it matter? <laughs> I'm about to say, if they're already like kind of headed out the door anyway, I don't think they're more concerned about what disease they're going to catch. That's crazy. It's a swing community. Did you come across any swingers when you were there? Oh, God, no. No, I was just there for speaking engagements. I uh, I did an engagement on my first book, The Innocence of Oswald, and I did another one on uh, uh, JFK Mark for Death. And so, uh, uh, and then I, I showed my film over there one time. So, it, like I said, it, it uh, I mean, they, they were nice people and everything. It's just I prefer being in a little bit younger 55 and up community that I'm in versus there. I get it, but the Beach Boys played there, so unless your community is bringing in the Beach Boys, I don't, I don't know. Uh, you know, we ain't got the Beach Boys yet, but you know, we have a live concert every Friday and Saturday night, and we have live music every day at the pool. So I know where I'm going. Uh, I, I'm not going to complain. Uh, Gary, I want to ask you about Operation Mockingbird. You have this book coming out. Maybe give us a brief description of what it's about, and obviously how you got interested in obviously media manipulation by the government, which we can talk extensively about. Yeah, it. Uh, I literally just got the uh, the first copy. Um, and um, it's basically, I've got 15 chapters in here uh, uh, about history. Um, everything from FDR and Pearl Harbor, Malcolm X's assassination, Marilyn Monroe, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, Dorothy Kilgallen's death, MLK's death, uh, Hell Boggs disappearance and death. Uh, something a lot of people don't realize, Jimmy Carter had an assassination attempt uh, against him. Uh, there's a, There was another case in the uh, late 70s, early 80s in Atlanta, where I lived 30-some uh, years of my life. I still have a home there, uh, about the Atlanta child murders and Wayne Williams. 
Uh, I've got chapters on Iran-Contra and Barry Seal, the Ronald Reagan assassination attempt, uh, JFK Jr.'s plane crash, uh, 9-11, and uh, uh, Princess Diana, all of them stating how the CIA had some sort of role with the media in misinforming the public. Uh, and I had, I had come up with this idea of the book um, on um, uh, Operation Mockingbird before I was approached by Damon Isay about doing JFK Jr. Mark for Death. This literally just came out last week as well. Uh, so even though I've got a chapter in this book on JFK Jr.'s death, I've done a completely different book on that. And I don't go into, on the Operation Mockingbird, I don't go into the JFK and the Robert Kennedy assassinations, uh, you know, just simply because I've covered other books on those topics and, you know, discuss it in there. So I didn't feel the, didn't feel the reason to repeat it. And like I said, this, this book was actually written before JFK Jr. book was written. Um, but with the timeline of JFK Jr.'s uh, death coming up, uh, you know, back in July, we wanted to get that out as quickly as possible. So it actually got published before Mockingbird. You find that you can get more people on board if you don't just talk about the JFK and the RFK stuff. If you kind of point to other example examples like Dorothy Kilgallen's death and all those, like it, that's the media manipulation thing. If you really look at it from a strategic standpoint of what the government does, is more understandable than just narrowing it down to simple events. The JFK stuff, everyone's go, oh, it's conspiracy talk and go away. But then you find out like the CIA, they influenced a well-known recent movie, which was the interview with Seth Rogen and James Franco. They actually, when that movie was done, they had an activist that shipped 100,000 copies on flash drives into North Korea using balloons. And uh, basically to try and get the people to pick it up, put it in their computer and kind of expose that their leader uh, was the sham or not a god, which I mean, that's the CIA influenced that. So it's like you start kind of boiling it down. It's not necessarily so conspiratorial. It's like they cover their image. If anything bad's going to be written about them. But then we get into like reporting back in the day during the Kennedy stuff where we get into reporting today and media today. Is it still happening? Right. Oh, it's definitely still happening. It's just that uh, it's a little harder for them to get away with it now. You know, back in the 60s, people trust their government and the news organizations. Uh, that's not the case anymore. Um, you know, I don't know which one has less trust, whether it's the media or the government, but, uh, you know, and, and rightfully they've earned that mistrust. Um, you know, you were talking about, and you sent me the link about the interview, you know, the, the CIA has been involved with, um, you know, movies for 25 years now. I mean, Zero Dark Thirty, uh, you know, all about Osama bin Laden. That was a CIA back movie as well. Uh, so, you know, like you said, they... They get in there to the point to release what they want to release, cover the ass where it needs to be covered, and you know, go on from there basically. And it's their version. I can't remember who it was right now that said it, but uh, uh, you know, the comment, you know, winners write history. You know, so you know they can they can write anything that they want. Um, and like I said, this book goes into, and, and especially even even though the CIA wasn't formed till forty seven. Their uh, predecessor, the OSS, I mean, they were given FDR advice during, uh, you know, the uh, war in Britain. Uh, and, you know, basically FDR needed to be involved in the war and allow Pearl Harbor to happen. We cracked the CIA, I'm sorry, we cracked the uh, Japanese code in April of 41. Yeah, eight months later, we're 
a surprise attack. Uh, you know, I don't buy it. I mean, what what FDR and the military did at that time was at Pearl Harbor, right in the middle of Ford Island, and they had all the battleships lined up on the inside part of the island, and they put all the other uh, boats around that, assuming that Japan, if they were to attack, were going to use torpedoes. And so, you know, they figured that, uh, you know, uh, that they would, you know, uh, allow them to attack, but they would hit the outer ships. Well, they didn't count on Japan doing an aerial assault as well and dropping bombs. And that's what, again, caused the Arizona, the Nevada, you know, all these, you know, ships to get destroyed. Um, but like I said, we, we knew about, you know, Pearl Harbor before it, before it even happened. I told you there's a couple of topics in your book I wanted to talk about, and I think we should start off with the first one. I want to know what you got about Dorothy Kilgallen, because that's an interest for me, um, her death and obviously connection to some things as well, too. But what did you write about in research for Dorothy Kilgallen when it comes to the CIA and misinforming the media? Well, the, uh, you know, the thing about Dorothy was she was a a reporter first and a media personality second. She was on uh, the TV show, What's My Line? Um, she, her father was a reporter. And so she just basically followed in his footsteps. Uh, and one of the first early cases that she uh, became involved with was the uh, Sam Shepard uh, murder trial up in, uh, I believe it's Cleveland, Ohio, uh, which, you know, kids younger, yourself included, um, and even people a little bit older than you, uh, you know, they don't remember the TV show The Fugitive with uh, David Jansen, but they remember the the movie The Fugitive. Well, that movie was all based upon the Sam Shepard case, and she basically uh, was able to get his case overturned. And from there, she got involved with uh, the JFK assassination, and she was the only reporter to ever get an interview with Jack Ruby during his trial. Um, and, you know, uh, even before that, in 1959, with uh, Castro coming to power, uh, she went to Cuba and interviewed Fidel Castro, which immediately got the FBI to open up a file on her, uh, got the CIA to open up a 201 file. On, no, well, not a 201 file, because that's an employee, but uh, but got them to open up a file on her. Um, and, you know, she she obtained a copy of Ruby's testimony to the Warren Commission of June 7th of 64, and that was when... Um, Warren and Ford and I think Jay Lee Rankin uh, went to Dallas. And, you know, this is when um, Ruby said basically to, to the effect, if you want to know more about this case, take me back to uh, to Washington. And they refused to do so. Um, and so, you know, she she revealed uh, that Ruby had told, you know, uh, Chief Justice Earl Warren that uh, JFK's assassination had been the result of a plot but insisted that he wasn't involved in it. Um, you know, and again, uh, this pissed off the FBI and the CIA. J. Edgar Hoover, you know, demanded to know her sources. And she said, you know, I'd rather die than reveal my sources. Um, and she was getting a lot of inside information. And according to uh, her, uh, her main biographer, I would say, would be Mark Shaw. He's written, I think, four or five books on uh, Dorothy. Uh, but, you know, he quotes in his last book and her, her source for all this information about Jack Ruby and the JFK assassination was actually uh, John Sherman Cooper, who was on the Warren Commission. And, you know, Cooper, along with Boggs and Richard Russell, were starting to dissent from the other members of the commission. And 
you know, she was responsible for getting Jack Ruby's trial overturned. He was awaiting a second trial in uh, Wichita Falls, uh, Texas, in uh, March of 67. But, uh, you know, suddenly he contracted cancer in December of 66. And, you know, and even admitted that he was being injected with cancer uh, viruses. Uh, but then the, the main thing that really I found interesting about Dorothy was, you know, she starts taking up with this uh, younger person. And, you know, Dorothy was married. I mean, she, she'd she been married for years. Uh, but she started having an affair with a guy by the name of Ron Pataki, who was basically, uh, you know, a CIA uh, grunt um, informant, whatever you want to call him. But uh, he was 22 years or junior. And, um, you know, they claimed at the very end that she died of an accidental overdose of alcohol and barbiturates. And, you know, it was just, it was very unusual. I mean, her hairdresser is the person that found her. She wasn't in her normal bedroom. She wasn't. She was laying in her guest room with a book on her chest, but her reading glasses were in the other exactly. room. Exactly. I mean, there were just so many things that just didn't add up. Uh, you know, and she claimed that, you know, uh, she was going to blow this JFK case wide open. And she always kept a, um, you know, a briefcase or notes with her uh, on the JFK assassination. And uh, basically, you know, she died under very mysterious circumstances. And, you know, it, again, it goes into, um, you know, the uh, the coroner was not even the coroner of Manhattan that did her, her autopsy. I mean, they, they did the autopsy, I think, in Brooklyn or Queens or something. Um, you know, again, just too many things just didn't add up. And the one person that entered her life shortly before this all happened was Ron Pataki. And unfortunately, when I tried to reach out to get a hold of Ron Pataki, he just died uh, in May, I think, 16, 17, something like that, of uh, 2022. And um, I, I think he was in Ohio as well. I don't know if it's Cle Cleveland or Columbus, but he, he's now gone too. But, you know, just very suspicious around everything that uh, that Dorothy was doing at that point. How did the media represent like her death? Oh, they, they I mean, I put it in my uh, paper that it was an accidental uh, dose of, uh, um, you know, barbiturates and alcohol. I've got the newspaper clipping in the book. And, you know, one of the uh, prescriptions that uh, I'm sorry, one of the drugs that was found in her system, she didn't even have a prescription for, um, there, you know, and again, there was nothing in her stomach contents on autopsy that showed that drug. And I have a feeling that she was treated much the same way that Marilyn Monroe was, where she was probably given a lethal injection uh, of barbiturates and so forth through an enema. So that way it would enter her uh, system, but would not show up on the stomach contents during an autopsy. Did you find out what happened to her diary? There's been theories and ideas that James Angleton took it. Yeah, um, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised by that. I mean, a lot of people don't know James Angleton, but he is. He's everywhere. He's hes top three of, quote, boogeyman in the CIA, you know, for decades. Um, you know, it, you know, Marilyn Monroe kept a diary as well. That was never found, you know, so, you know, who knows? I have to ask um, about 
when it comes to Dorothy Kilgallen, I mean, was she obviously going investigating more deeper into the JFK assassination? But did anybody voice skepticism or fears to her? I mean, I know in her last couple of days she was consulting with a friend about she had something that was going to blow the case wide open um, on her information. But I was just curious if she obviously voiced it to anybody else or if anybody else warned her about areas that she was looking into. Well, I don't know if people, you know, of authority warned her about anything. I mean, her hairdresser and the people closest to her, uh, you know, she admitted to her hairdresser, and I, I've got the quote in the book. You know, she goes, "If uh, uh, if if the uh, American people learn what I have discovered on the Kennedy assassination, I'd be dead." I mean, so she knew she was a threat, and so it, it's not surprising. Uh, but again, you know, you have to have, you know, elements of the CIA, you have to have elements of the FBI, uh, you know, all keeping, you know, close tabs on the individual because the CIA is a clandestine organization. Generally, if they're doing anything in the United States, it's mob related. Um, you know, they get the mob to do their dirty work here and they do they do their own dirty work overseas. Uh, but, you know, legally, you know. I could have very easily have said that this book was the CIA and the FBI's role in media manipulation because, you know, the FBI always opens up a, a file or a case on an individual to, to basically have a legal standpoint for doing so. But uh, the FBI is just as guilty as the CIA. It's just that the CIA, uh, through Operation uh, Mockingbird, I mean, you know, they, 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 their, their budget was 2.3, I think, billion dollars back in 1975 and it's up over 200 billion annually now to to buy off media sources and you know back in 75 your media sources was abc cbs nbc time life uh, newsweek fortune i mean you had four or five major uh magazines four or five major newspapers and bottom line if a newspaper article was reported in the new york times the washington post you know whatever all the other local, you know, newspapers that weren't as big as the Washington, uh, you know, or New York Times, you know, Washington Post or New York Times, they always picked up that story and, you know, basically did their version of it or, or literally just copied it word for word and gave credit to, you know, the Washington Post or UPI, AP, whoever it was. So, you know, they just, they manipulated the system early on and, they continue to do so today. Uh, I, I made mention in my first book, The Innocence of Oswald. You know, um, Bill O'Reilly was a, a big conspiracy theorist for the longest time. I mean, he worked for WFAA and worked for Inside Edition and was, you know, talking about, you know, how it was conspiracy, uh, you know, involving DeMornshield, you know, getting killed and everything. And then he joins Fox News and writes his book, Killing Kennedy. You know, what changed? You know, the only thing that changed is he went to work for a major, you know, news organization and he did a complete 180 flip. And now he's, you know, backing the government on, you know, everything that happened. And instead of being a conspiracy advocate, because the check pays better. I mean, I, I say it all the time and almost in every single one of my books and every time I do a presentation in Dallas, you know, Chicago, D.C., wherever I'm speaking at, the lie pays better than the truth. I, I want to ask, what do you think is the most influential source back in the day and then also now? Because I would see like I've seen more documentation on the FBI's influence into Hollywood 
than I've seen the CIA's, but I also see the CIA's involvement more in the media and the news, like articles, journalists, and things of that sort, which I think back then was more prominent than movies are today would be the main source now. Right. Well, again, you know, they... they... Because we have proof with Operation Mockingbird, which is the title of your book, and it says it ended after three months, which I found JFK documents a year later that talk about getting your covert media assets in line. It's like it was productive. They don't just stop doing it. Yeah. Well, it's, it's it's like the old saying, you never leave the CIA. You just don't get assigned major assignments anymore. You don't get a pension. You end up in a kayak somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Floating down a river. Uh, but, you know, you can go back to... Even CBS News, literally 10 minutes after the Kennedy assassination happened, Walter Cronkite came on the air and said three shots were fired today at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. Uh, you know, every indication basically says, you know, and I'm paraphrasing here, but, uh, you know, that he basically says that the, the wounds could be fatal. Well, it's amazing to me that CBS News automatically knew, just like the Warren Commission report, that there were only three shots fired. Now, a gun hadn't been found yet. Um, an investigation hasn't started yet. They haven't found the bullets, which, by the way, were only three shells uh, in the southeast corner window. But Walter Cronkite knew within 10 minutes, without an investigation being done, there were only three shots. Yet if you asked, you know, eyewitnesses that day how many shots, most of them said four to six. Um, and again, the, the CIA and the, the media comes in. Well, those were echoes, you know, because Dealey Plaza, you know, they've got the, the triple underpass and the way the buildings are, are situated around it. Those were echoes. It was it was only three shots, you know. Well, it was only three shots because they knew that they already had three bullets in the southeast corner window. They knew once the, the Zapruder film was shown that it didn't allow for any timing more than three shots. And originally, you know, the Warren Commission originally said one hit Kennedy in the uh, back and the neck, one hit Connolly, and then one hit Kennedy in the head. And James Tague's testimony forced the Warren Commission to change their testimony. And that's when uh, our inspector came up with his magic bullshit theory. I mean, bullet theory. Um, you know. Which, which is interesting because if you watch a lot of those old interviews, it's Alan Dulles that's the one that's involved in a lot of those interviews with the press. Oh, yeah. Well, he was uh, he attended more meetings than anybody of the Warren Commission. Well, he also went to bars and clubs with a lot of these head magazine owners and part or not clubs, parties like dinner parties, cocktail parties and things of that sort with a lot of these time life business editors and magazine editors. And I think there's even a receipt in one of the new documents that came out that was for three thousand dollars. Alan Dulles showed up in someone's office. Um, and just left three thousand dollars on a desk, and it was one of the main reporter. Uh, it was com- it was a transcript from a reporter who worked in that office had witnessed Alan Dulles come in and drop three thousand dollars on the main person's desk. But we have no idea what that three thousand dollars was for. Uh, he, you know, got an ice cream delivery earlier in that day. Yeah, just a little, you know, Ben and Jerry's ice cream, little pint, um, three thousand dollars worth. Uh, I have to ask, when it comes to Hale Boggs, though, do you does you have that your book's about the CIA's influence in the media? You think Hale Boggs, like, what was going on with that? Because I thought I always thought it was the FBI or Hoover that knocked him off. Um, if it was the FBI. Uh, I think they would have, quote, found the plane, so to speak, uh, just so that way they could have more evidence to claim it was a plane crash or whatever. 
Um, you know, Hellbogs, it, it just amazes me that he disappears on a flight from, I think, Juno, uh, Anchorage to Juno, I think it was, that he was going on. And here we are 51 years later, planes never been found, bodies have never been found. Um, his own daughter, Koki Roberts, uh, was involved with the media, I think, since 1975. So three years after her dad's death, uh, you know, she's involved with the media and never in the history of her uh, reporting news, I think, for 44 years when she passed away, did she ever do a story about the Warren Commission or her father's death? Um, you know, again, lie pays better than the truth. And the only, you know, the CIA is obviously involved with Operation Mockingbird. She was part of the media. You know, again, I'm pretty sure she was told you just don't, you don't go down this roadway. I mean, I know it's your father, but if you want to keep the cush job and the lifestyle and the money that you're used to, you just don't go there. Um, you, you know, Scott Rock too. A lot of people don't realize that uh, when uh, Hell Boggs went to leave uh, Dulles Airport, um, Bill Clinton drove him to the fucking airport, didn't he? William Jefferson Clinton drove him to the airport. Yeah, that's nuts, man. A young Bill Clinton. Yeah. Well, yeah, right? I have to ask, why do you think he was taken out? Because there's that AP News interview where he's calling out J. Edgar Hoover uh, for oh, yeah. wiretapping congressmen. And that oh, yeah. after that, Earl yeah. Warren pulled him aside. Yeah, and and you know, and Hell Boggs, along with uh, John Sherman Cooper and Richard Russell, you know, after about sixty seven, sixty eight, after uh, CBS News did a uh, a follow up on the Warren Commission that they did over, I think, three or four nights, an hour each night in sixty seven, and one of the uh, experts that they had on the program was uh, John J. McCloy. Uh, who was a you know Warren Commission member and former president of the World Bank, and you know he he was talking about anytime Walter Cronkite would ask him a question, he he you know that was borderline on uh, investigating the uh, the events. John J. McCloy would bring up the the standard line of, "Well, I was told by coming on this program, I wouldn't be asked about this or or." you know, questions around the JFK assassination. I'm just here to validate what you have, you know, in this new article. And, and so again, it was just a rehash. But after that, Hell Boggs, John Sherman Cooper, and Richard Russell really started speaking out uh, about the uh, the Warren Commission uh, report. Uh, Hell Boggs, I mean, I've got it quoted in the book. He said that, you know, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover lied through his teeth on everything. Uh, you know, about, you know, the, the the bullets, the number of shots. I mean, Oswald's involvement, whether he was, you know, being investigated. Well, the FBI and the CIA were opening up his mail for four years. I mean, you know, why? You know, that's what gets me when all these people say, well, oh, it was just a lone nut. Well, if it's a lone nut, then why do, after 60 years, are we still having secret information? Why Why were they opening Oswald's mail for four years? You know, why did they lie about him uh, defecting to Russia when we actually sent him there through the CIA? And that document is in uh, my first book as well. So, you know, Hell Boggs and John Sherman Cooper and Richard Russell, they, they, they just, and even Richard Russell, one of his last interviews to WSB TV in Atlanta, uh, which is still uh, on the air, 
uh, you know, he flat out said that, you know, the, the Warren Commission report was a sham, you know, that it was just a lie. Now, where did you go to access a lot of your information, like on Dorothy Kilgown and Hale Boggs? Did you just look through old transcripts, video footage, documents of that sort? Yeah, I mean, and you can find a lot of stuff. Um, believe it or not, still, uh, you don't have to go to the library anymore, but you can look up old newspaper articles, microfilms, things like that. Uh, you know, you got to realize when I first got involved with the JFK assassination, it was 198, January 1980. We didn't have the Internet. And only thing I had was encyclopedias and microfilm of old newspapers. And what got me on this whole kick was all these eyewitnesses said that they heard shots from different directions. They heard more than three shots, you know. Uh, but again, the Warren Commission got it magically right 10 months later, even though none of the seven members were there in Dallas when it happened. Uh, so yeah, that, that's that's what started me down the rabbit hole with him. And then when I went to Dallas for the first time in 87 and standing in that uh, sixth floor corner window, I was like, this didn't happen the way they said it did. Were you shocked at the media manipulational aspects? I mean, you probably knew a little bit from the Kennedy stuff, but were you just surprised at how deep it goes? I mean, it does border on the line of trusting in, in, in investigative journalism. Like, I think journalism's dead. I've spoken to Fox correspondents and CNN correspondents. They'll show you how the sausage gets made. I think that's even David Talbot when he was on my show speaking about, you know, his writings and articles about certain things. It's not – there's not any – it's an illusion of free press. I mean, and it's not conspiracy. People can call that conspiracy, but, uh, and I, just a quick example, Lawrence Suey um, was a film historian and he kept hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of documents in his house until he donated it to a collection to the archives, but had it in a private collection. So when you went to go access it, you had to ask him and he would be like, no, he would just say no for the longest time. But it was all about DOD influencing movie scripts, CIA influencing movie scripts, all these propaganda from like the like the 40s, basically, this guy had stored up. And that information wasn't known until 2019. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, and one of the things that I go into um, in my... Um... In my book, um, you know, Operation Mockingbird is about the uh, Gulf of Tonkin incident, uh, you know, which happened, you know, ironically, the day I was born, July 31st of 1964, the USS Maddox was patrolling along the, uh, the North Vietnamese coast. And the next day they heard, they intercepted um, radio transmissions from P-4 uh, torpedo boats discussing upcoming attacks. And uh, the next day on the 2nd, uh, as these boats started to approach the Maddox, the Maddox fired three warning shots and uh, they retaliated by firing two shots, but both of them missed the Maddox. Um, the Maddox claimed that they had hit one of the boats and damaged, uh, I'm sorry, damaged one of the boats and sunk one of the other ones. Um, and, you know, they reported to the Pentagon that they were under attack. And the person that they reported this to, uh, was Daniel Ellsberg, who later released the Pentagon Papers. Um, but, you know, later on, uh, you know, they had a, another attack on August 4th. And later on, um, the um, the captain um, of the Maddox, hold on for a second, I'll uh, be able to tell you his name. Um, but, uh, but, you know, he, he, uh, he concluded that, you know, that the second attack never happened, 
that it was just false information they were picking up on radar, uh, you know, from weather in the area. And, uh, you know, this guy's trying to do the right thing and and declare that, you know, nothing happened, that, that you know, that this attack didn't happen. And, you know, Johnson, for whatever reason, completely ignored, uh, you know, the comments by Ellsberg, because Ellsberg had reported this to Robert McNamara, who supposedly, obviously, had to notify the president. Um, and I found it ironic that in um, June of 2008, there was an interview with McNamara on CNN, and he said that ultimately it was concluded that almost certainly the August 4th attack had occurred. He goes, but even at the time, there was some recognition of a margin of error, so we weren't entirely certain. And again, I'm paraphrasing this, but he goes, but because it was highly probable and because even if it hadn't occurred, there was a strong feeling we should have responded to the first attack. Uh, and so President Johnson decided to respond to the second attack, again, which never actually happened. Uh, but McNamara would continue to say on that uh, CNN program that when he visited Hanoi in November of 95, I think it was, uh, you know, he asked um, uh, North Vietnamese General, I think it's pronounced uh, Jap, it's like G-I-A-P or I-A-P-E or something like that, uh, asked him if the uh, attack occurred and he said no. And McNamara says, well, I accept that. And basically the result of this false attack was the beginning of the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, basically declaring war on August 7th, you know, in, uh, you know, in Vietnam that over 58,000 people died. And again, Johnson committed us to war because he wanted the war. He wanted the money from the war, but over 58,000 Americans died due to a false flag attack. And it's patently known now that nothing happened. It was all made up. And we went to war for it. I mean, the propaganda, I think the I've seen propaganda films from obviously the Vietnam War, where like soldiers are on fire and they just jump right into the water. I'm sure there was some of that that happened, but the films and footage that they got of it, it's been proven that it is propaganda films. It does. It distorts the public's perception of what's going on. And more people are going to react with emotion, which is that we need to go do whatever we possibly can to win this thing. I mean, the sense of patriotism is a form that comes out of propaganda, which is dangerous in a lot of aspects. Yeah, the uh, like I said, the captain of the Maddox, I remember his name now, it's uh, John Herrick. You know, he said, you know, the next day, you know, he's trying to report that, hey, this was wrong. I mean, there, there were no bodies in the water. There's no debris of boats in the water. There's no, you know, evidence that we hit anything. And he's trying to step up and do the right thing and say, you know, this is a false flag and none of this shit happened. And Johnson basically just ignored it. How dangerous do you think it is that the government has such influence into media? <laughs> well, um, let me see. It's a, it's a quote I have from uh, Malcolm X in the book, and it says something to the fact that the, the media is the most dangerous uh, entity out there that can make the innocent look guilty and the guilty look innocent. Uh, again, I'm paraphrasing, but... Um, you know, they have the power to to railroad anybody that they want. Um, just like, you know, with the JFK assassination, you know, the Dallas police, if they want to make a case against you, they can make a case against you. And I, I found out later on doing research that of all the counties in Texas, Dallas has had the most uh, overturned convictions of 
uh, heinous crimes uh, based on DNA than any other county in the state of Texas. What does it add up to like a 300% or something like that or their oh, conviction rate? Yeah, it's ridiculous. And, you know, again, going back years and, and, and again, I even have in my book on the, um, on the Malcolm X assassination, uh, the, the guy that claimed, you know, the, uh, the guilt in shooting Malcolm X, he had two other accomplices. Well, they arrested three guys and the main guy said during his trial, these other two guys didn't have anything to do with it. Well, it didn't matter. They still went to jail. Okay. They, they, they still served their time. Now, granted, all of them eventually got out on parole, you know, 40 years later. And two of the guys uh, ended up suing the uh, FBI and the uh, New York Police Department, and they settled out of court for $36 million for those two guys. And again, they have an affidavit from the guy that claimed I did the main shooting and I had two other people involved, you know, they have an affidavit from this guy saying these two guys are not involved, yet the media railroaded them. And again, when I say media, it's the CIA railroaded these guys into a guilty conviction. And just this past uh, February, I believe, on the 55th anniversary of his death, I think it's February 21st of this year, uh, two of Malcolm X's daughters uh, filed suit against the FBI, the New York Police Department, and the CIA for $100 million, stating that all three of them were negligent in, um, you know, in in uh, protecting and uh, basically having uh, Malcolm X killed. Uh, they harassed this guy for years, um, you know, and it didn't help that, you know, Louis Farrakhan was involved. It didn't help, uh, you know, with uh, Elijah Muhammad. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to go into a religious aspect with Muslim, you know, religion and everything and what they believe, but uh, it was clear that he was being manipulated and was trying to do the right thing. And even, he, you know, he only met Dr. King one time, but reached out to Dr. King and said, you know, we need to join forces. And he needed to calm down his rhetoric about, you know, um, you know, that it, it, that it could be solved. If violence was used to solve the problem, so be it. Well, he had, toned down his rhetoric on that and was willing to reach out to Dr. King and use the SCLC's, you know, uh, you know, stance of, uh, you know, standing up for what you believe in, but not uh, any violence. And so uh, Malcolm X was prepared to go that route. And again, you know, just too many things that don't add up. Can I ask about your personal observations from the, obviously the main narrative when it comes to the Kennedy case? Uh, a lot of lone nutters are always interviewed on a lot of these talk shows, and it's not maybe some conspiracy books. And I've heard it from like Vince Palomar, I think, has the best. You know, David Lifton's was a bestseller. There was a couple out there, conspiracy people that made some good money. You got some good traction on your video. But over a line, when it comes to like documentaries or things that pitch the official narrative, lone nutters are always interviewed on NBC or CNN or whoever you want to say about any of these types of cases. Oh, yeah. I even bring it up in um, in this book that, you know, every time there's a, a a story that the government has to prove that they were right about something, they trot uh, Gerald Posner out to, you know, back up anything the government has to say, you know, and here's Posner that, again, I've met the guy and he's a nice enough guy, but, you know, had him on the show. Back, yeah, he always backs up the government, you know, he, uh, you know, was guilty of plagiarism, I mean, was threatened to be sued, hired Mark Lane to defend him and got off on it and even said, 
you know, if Mark Lane had been Oswald's attorney, you know, I think he would have got off. But, you know, Oswald was guilty. You know, he still has to throw that in there that that Oswald was guilty. Uh, you know, and, and this is a guy that, again, you know, goes to visit Harper Lee and basically gets her to sign over all the rights to kill a mockingbird to him and another guy. I mean, yeah, he's a real stand up guy right there, uh, like I said, but that's who they trot out, you know, every single time. And when he was alive, you know, Vincent Bugliosi, they bring that skeleton out of the closet all the time, too. Um, Bugliosi is the only guy I know that looked like a walking skeleton when he was alive. It's it's dangerous because when you talk about like the idea of truth, I mean, there's not an incentive to speak the truth. There's not an incentive to go after it at all. Like I was mentioning with the Fox and CNN correspondents, they'll tell you how the sausage gets made. There's just it's dangerous because obviously, like even now with 60 years into the Kennedy assassination, you have some talks about it and some articles doing about it. But is it going to have the same impact as it would have had 10 years ago? Exactly. You know, and, and again. You know, it's it's thrown down your throat so much, the lie that people don't want to hear the truth. I mean, uh, you know, another perfect example, most people, and again, it's in the in the Operation Mockingbird book on Martin Luther King. Most people don't know that the King family brought up a civil suit uh, in 1993, um, you know, and it didn't actually go to trial until I think like 99 or something like that. Um, but um in 1993, uh, Lloyd Jowers appeared on um, Primetime Live, uh, ABC News program, and claimed that he was part of a conspiracy uh, to kill Dr. King involving the mafia, again, and the U.S. government. Well, the mafia, again, is always, if it's, uh, you know, domestic killing, it's the CIA using the mafia. But according to Jowers, uh, James Earl Ray was a scapegoat. He had nothing to do with King's murder. Uh, Jowler said he paid $100,000 to arrange uh, the assassination through a mafia guy by the name of uh, Frank Liberto. Um, he, implicated an, uh, he implicated an individual by the name of Merrill McAuliffe, who was an undercover police officer for the Memphis uh, Police Department and a CIA operative uh, who was uh, posing as a member of a militant black political group known as the Invaders. And Jowler said there were numerous uh, alleged assassins, including Raul, who James Earl Ray mentioned as well. But Raul admits that he hired uh, a Memphis police lieutenant by the name of Earl Clark uh, to do the fatal shot from behind uh, his tavern, Jim's Grill, which was the um, the restaurant below the rooming house that James Earl Ray was using. And it had a little brushy hillside. And I've got pictures in the book of what it looked like uh, the day of the assassination of MLK. But you know, Jowers admits that, you know, he used a, uh, you know, paid a uh, lieutenant on the Memphis police force to kill um, Dr. King as a favor to this mafia guy. And the the mafia guy that was uh, uh, posing as a member of the military black group, the invaders, there's a picture of uh, Dr. King on the balcony outside room 306 and McCullough is standing over top of him. You know, here, here's a guy that's, you know, that's basically wants him dead. And then when he sees that the shot has been fired, he has to go up there to see for his own eyes that that, uh, you know, that he's actually dying. Uh, so, again, a lot of people don't know about that, that civil suit. And the King family won that suit. And it was only four hundred dollars. 
Okay. They donated the money to charity. They didn't want it, the money. They didn't, they didn't sue the government for millions of dollars to get rich off of it. They wanted the truth to be out there, but not a single, you know, news agency picked up the story. You know, valid proof. I mean, I have transcripts of the trial in my book. This all happened. And the media's like, nah, no, it didn't. <laughs> you know, it's amazing to me. Do you find that like a lot of the public like would kind of like just kind of nod their head and go away because it's a political thing? But then how do you explain someone like Marilyn Monroe and a celebrity like that where her even Princess Diana, both those that you that you write about, huge celebrities, royalty family and one of them. Um, Marilyn Monroe is considered technically royalty to a lot of people, but those are they're controversial. They're mysterious. They have an explanation, but a lot of the public does not buy that explanation. Yeah, and again, it's just because if you know, if you just keep throwing the lie down your throats, eventually, you know, the American public will believe it. No matter what truth comes out, I've got another quote in my book that says uh, uh, something to the effect of uh, uh, a truth is uh, uh, the truth is still the truth, even if no one believes it, and a lie is still a lie, even if everyone believes it. You know, it's. Um, it's it's sad. I mean, um, I you know personally, I think Marilyn Monroe was. Um, Do you believe the stories about Bobby? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, the majority of the Marilyn Monroe story is about uh, Robert Kennedy being in Los Angeles at the time. I don't know about that. Oh yeah, uh, I mean, for example, you got to uh, understand a lot of the Kennedy researchers don't focus into the scandals and stuff like that when it comes no, to no, they don't affairs. they don't want to they don't want to hear the bad part of the Kennedy family. My wife says that to me all the time. She's like, you know, how can you support JFK when he was a womanizer? And I'm like, well, I support him because of what he was doing for the country, not what he is doing between the sheets. I about to say Howard Hughes had multiple fuck pads, and nobody even brings that up. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the the perfect example of, um, you know. With Marilyn, she was, by all indications, she had a tryst with JFK once, possibly twice. Uh, and then he basically realized, you know, I need to, you know, let this go and uh, move on. And he basically put Bobby in charge of breaking the news to her. And, you know, she started coming on to Bobby and, you know, he fell for it too. And he had a much more uh, serious affair with Marilyn than JFK did. And, you know, it got to the point where he started, you know, telling her it's over and uh, she was, uh, you know, she started calling his office and, you know, he, he even had to have the justice number changed because she was calling the private line and he had to have the phone number changed. And then she went as far as like a week before uh, called his house and that just threw him over the edge and him and um, Ethel and I think two or three of their kids at the time went to San Francisco uh, on like August, I think, 2nd, I think it was. Um, but, um, you know, the thing about Marilyn was she was found by her uh, housekeeper, Eunice Murray, as unresponsive at around 1030 that evening. And she called her personal physician, Dr. Greenson, and an ambulance. And the ambulance personnel showed up. And it's funny because I quoted in the book, um, one of the ambulance drivers admits that they went to move her off of the bed, that she was alive, but she was comatose. They went to move her off of the bed to uh, perform CPR, and they dropped her. 
Uh, and he says that he goes, I remember it. He goes, because that's the only patient I ever dropped. He goes, and, uh, you know, she had a bruise on her hip because of it. And um, she said, they said that uh, during that time frame, Dr. Greenson showed up and said that he was her personal physician. And he started examining her and supposedly uh, gave her a, a shot uh, to supposedly help revive her. Um, most people think it was, uh, you know, more to sedate her more uh, or possibly even kill her, but not officially a poison because that would have showed up in her bloodstream. But uh, bottom line, her official time of death wasn't listed until 3.30 in the morning, five hours after she was found. And the LAPD wasn't even notified until almost an hour later at 4.25. Thomas Noguchi did that autopsy, didn't he? Yeah. And all of this delay in timing is to get RFK out of L.A., Okay, because there was a red eye flight uh, going back from L.A. to San Francisco because he was spotted uh, at the uh, Beverly Hilton Hotel that afternoon by former police chief William Parker, who had mentioned it to Mayor Sam Yorty that both RFK and Pat Lawford, uh, you know, were at the uh, Beverly uh, Hotel, Beverly Hilton Hotel that afternoon. So and again, there was. Um, um, FBI and CIA bugging of Marilyn's um, room, I mean, of her house and of her room. And, you know, there's, uh, uh, according to, and I haven't listed in my book, I can't remember his name off the top of my head now, but uh, he was an FBI informant and he admits that Peter Lawford and Robert Kennedy showed up there that afternoon around 6.30 in the evening. And again, um when they, when Peter Lawford and Robert Kennedy showed up that evening around 6.30, they had another gentleman with them. And I quote uh, uh, Eunice Murray. She says that the, the guy had a satchel, a bag with him, and she just assumed that he was a doctor and, you know, left left him alone with, uh, with Marilyn. And I'm pretty sure that she was, at, you know, like I said, there, there were numerous phone calls made. She, she called Peter Lawford earlier in the day. She had called... Um, you know, um, I think Frank Sinatra's son or somebody. I mean, she she had made several phone calls and everybody said that she just sounded like she was very intoxicated and not with it. Um, and I think she probably was. And I think that, you know, when uh, RFK and Peter Lawford and this mysterious man went over there, I think they basically gave her an enema of barbiturates that, that killed her because, again, showed up in her bloodstream, but none of the contents were actually in the stomach on autopsy and you know and there's even i even go into interesting notes about uh thomas noguchi doing the autopsy at the time he was the assistant coroner he wasn't the main coroner but he was you know ordered to do this autopsy because basically the coroner of la county at that time was in good friendship with the mayor and so forth and he didn't want his, his name to be on the report so you know, it's like I said, it's very controversial. And, you know, that's not even going into the 9-11 and some of the more recent cases. I want to ask what you wrote about with 9-11 because I've done a few episodes on that. I have a weird line with it because I'm new to the whole conspiracy aspect. I don't believe that the buildings were simulate simulations like some people out there do. But I definitely don't believe the full truth is not given to the American public, mostly because um, if you look at the plane that went into the Pentagon or what they say went into the Pentagon, What's one angle from like a fucking parking garage where I'm like, you're telling me that the Pentagon doesn't have 80 other security cameras? Uh, there, and were just... over, there were over 130 cameras 
on the Pentagon that day. And again, yeah, you're right. That one from the uh, toll booth at the parking garage, which is the one that captures the missile going into the building. It's not a plane. So I'm very rational when it comes to this. Mostly there's questions from the families that I've seen that I feel like should be answered, especially I don't think national security covers that, especially for the trauma and the pain that they've experienced. Um, mostly like why was the scrap metal like sold like a week later, you know, when the families were crying, saying you're hindering the investigation and doing that. But the government got rid of that real quick and sold it to China, which I think is very suspicious. And the media didn't really report on it until later on. Well, and not only that, but I mean, you've got, uh, you know, the fact that you've got uh, architects and engineers for 911 Truth, you know, talking about how, um, you know, steel melts at, uh, um, you know, like 2,500 degrees, but airplane fuel burns at 15 to 1,800 degrees. Okay, so it's not burning hot enough to to melt the girders. And I've got pictures in the book of, several girders that were literally sheared off at a 45 degree angle. Um, again, that doesn't happen in a free fall. Um, you know, it's, there were just like the JFK assassination, there were at the school book depository, there were unknown uh, work crews in there refurbishing the um, uh, sixth floor, the school book depository. Same thing was happening with the World Trade Centers. There was, uh, uh, unknown, you know, workers allowed in there for, uh, you know, doing uh, updates or whatever, you know, making the, you know, uh, the the buildings nicer, so to speak. But again, unauthorized people had access to the building. And one of the most interesting things that I came across when I was doing my research on this is uh, uh, there was a company that called, uh, I believe, Securicom that uh, was responsible for the security of uh, the Twin Towers and actually the whole uh, uh, World Trade Center complex. Uh, but they were responsible for the security there. They were also responsible for security for American Airlines. And they were also responsible for security uh, for Dulles Airport. And uh, the person that was in charge of head of security there was Marvin Bush. Marvin Bush, George Bush's brother. Damn. Yeah. Well, it's the frat environment that goes on and, with these and, politics. And again, one of the planes took off from Dulles. Two of the planes were American Airlines. Two of the buildings hit were the World Trade Centers, and all of this falls under the security of Securicom being ran by Marvin Bush. But no reason to look here. Nothing to see here. Go, you know, go on. I think there has been people that have investigated it. I just think you don't come up with enough leads or anything to jump the smoking gun. You notice on a lot of these investigations that actually do get some questions, there's stuff that comes to inconclusive evidence to report. I'm like, is it because it just didn't fit your narrative? Is that what happens? Like a lot of CIA and FBI reports of the commission and everything like that during the JFK stuff was just inconclusive evidence, inconclusive evidence. Like you guys didn't pursue those leads, though. Well, I, I say all the time on the Warren Commission. If they had anything that made Oswald look guilty, it went in the report. If they had anything that looked like he was not involved, it was ruled uh, inadmissible or hearsay and was unreliable. Um, same thing with 9-11. You know, you've got, uh, you can go on YouTube right now, there's a BBC reporter admitting that uh, uh, World Trade Center 7, a 47-story building, uh, collapsed. And in the background of the report 
is World Trade Center 7 still standing? She announced it 30 minutes before it collapsed. And then when they asked, um, you know, well, what caused World Trade Center 7 to collapse? And they said, well, it was all the debris and fire from World Trade Center 1 uh, that, you know, caused World Trade Center 7 to collapse. Well, there was a Verizon building right next to World Trade Center 7 had one little window area that was damaged. The rest of the building's perfect, yet World Trade Center 7 is completely gone. They're, they're right beside each other. So all of this debris from World Trade Center 1 collapsing went to this one building instead of this building. Again, I don't buy it. Um, you know, the uh, CIA's budget was kept in World Trade Center 7, I believe. You know, Donald Rumsfeld had just admitted the day before on September 10th that we need another uh, Pearl Harbor uh, style attack to get the country back uh, on track. And he also admitted that there was, I think, $2.3 billion or $3.2 billion that the accounting office at the Pentagon couldn't justify. It was missing money. And guess what area of the Pentagon got hit? Where that was being held at. The one area of the building that had not been reinforced yet was the area that the, quote, plane hit. Yet, I've got it in my book, all these pictures. You don't see any wings anywhere. You see all these pictures afterwards of them putting the fire out. There's no plane parts anywhere on that grass. Do you I think mean, a, Do you think a lot of the truth comes out from, like, people's biographies? Like, have you ever read Dick Cheney's biography where he gives the shoot-down order over the plane that's flying over the White House? And you hear stuff like that. I'm like, I feel like a lot of these people that are involved, even with um, Richard Helms's biography, uh, which if you read the rough draft compared to the final draft, there's a big change that occurs because the ghost writer who happens to be a vampire because it seems like he lives for fucking centuries. Uh, the guy, the guy's basically, he would be 400 years old when he's writing a lot of this shit. It doesn't make sense how he's able to live so long. Um, but it's the same name on every one of these CIA directors books when they're able to write their memoirs. And the rough draft change to Richard Helms was Richard Helms said that through my time as director, I had participated in thousands of covert operations. Now that's a probably more realistic number. The final copy of the book says dozens. So it's like, you just manipulate the wording and there's a different impact there. Yeah, well, you know, after JFK was uh, killed, one of the first things that Robert Kennedy did was uh, uh, reach out to uh, McCone, who was director of the CIA at the time. And, and he said, you know, one of your guys did it. Uh, and he summoned McCone to uh, come to uh, Hickory Hill, which is where he lived. And um, I can't remember if it was Walter Sheraton or who was there, but uh, somebody there was with uh, Robert Kennedy and basically told Robert Kennedy, you know, McCone, if he stumbles upon um, any uh, clandestine information, it was completely by accident that Richard Helms was running the CIA at the time, not McCone. Um, you know, there's also uh, in 9-11, there's some talking about uh, memoirs and autobiographies. Uh, uh, Richard Clark has a, a great biography about how he was warning you know, the Bush administration about, you know, all these, um, you know, uh, Middle Eastern pilots taking private training uh, in Florida. Um, you know, he warned him about Osama bin Laden. And eventually it got to the point in uh, the end of August when Bush was at his ranch in Crawford, Texas. And uh, 
he finally told Clark and the uh, NSC and the CIA, all right, you've done enough to cover your ass. Shut the hell up. Um, you know, so, you know, again, we, we knew this was coming. Um, you know, I, I've been to Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Uh, again, that plane, there is nothing on the black boxes. There's nothing on the flight data recorders below 6,200 feet. That plane was literally shot out of the sky. Um, you know, and you can have a great story that, uh, you know, that, uh, Todd Beamer was, uh, you know, telling, you know, let's roll and they were going to take back over the, uh, uh, the, uh, cockpit and everything. It's a great story, but, um, you know, my co-author Tim Brennan worked with Todd Beamer's father, Frank, uh, Beamer. And he never said, you know, my son never said that, or, you know, obviously he's not going to say anything like that would make the son look like a liar or, or a non-hero, but bottom line, you know, it didn't, they were shot out of the sky. I mean, they might've been trying to take back over the cockpit, but they didn't have a chance, you know, and the stories of people using cell phones, you know, I, I put a graphic in, um, in my, uh, in this book. And at the time in 2001, cell towers on average were only about 25 miles apart. It's not like today where there's one every half mile. Okay. Back then it was like 25 miles apart. So you're going to tell me flight data recorder show this plane anywhere between 41,000 and 10,000 feet. So I'm getting on my cell phone. It's picking up a tower, you know, 300 feet off the ground and pinging back up to me between 10 and 41,000 feet. And I don't lose the call until I get to the next tower. It automatically transfers over. Well, at 500 some miles an hour from one tower to the other, that 25 mile distance, that plane covers in like 33 seconds. But they didn't lose any phone calls. Again, I don't buy it. Um, you know, there were there were actual landlines on the phone that one of the flight attendants called and warned of the uh uh, uh, hijacking. I mean, I can believe that because that's hardwired into the plane, into something on the ground, but I don't believe any of those cell phone calls happen. I just don't. Were you nervous about putting the 9-11 towers on the front page of your book? No, because it's, it's the most striking story of our, of our time. But doesn't that hinder with publishers? Uh, that's why I do the self-publish route. But even with it getting on Amazon and things of that sort, you're not nervous about that? No, no, not at all. I tell my wife all the time, there's bigger fish to fry than, you know, than me. I mean, there's plenty of people that have more information out there uh, on 9-11, on all these stories. Um, you know, I just, I'm just trying to, you know, awaken a few people your age, college age, younger that, you know, don't believe everything you're being told. I mean, from the first time we talked, you, I give you a little bit of hope on that front. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think a lot of people are, especially like I put up some posts and I sent you a clip of that thing that I clipped up. I think a lot of people are starting to wake up now that there's a, at least the internet. If you know where to look for, though, that's the thing. If you type in CIA's influence into Hollywood, you're going to get a book or so, but you're not going to get any documentation. You got to type in like the exact name of the document and the document numbers which I think needs to be more known. But again, that's citing sources and things of that sort. I mean, how hard was it for you to gather sources for your book? Well, I generally, from the very beginning with the uh, Innocence of Oswald book, 
I would not put anything in a book that I could not back up with either a government document or at least three credible eyewitnesses to the actual story. Uh, the exception to that is in um, um, in March of this year, I did a follow-up to The Innocence of Oswald, and I released my second edition, and I changed the title to 60-plus years instead of 50-plus years of lies, deception, and deceit uh, in the murders of President John F. Kennedy and also J.D. Tippett, because one of the, um, one of the stories that I put out, uh, I only had two sources for. And but the so, the story was how when JFK and LBJ arrived at the uh, Hotel Texas on the night of the 21st, the um, the manager on duty that night, and again I'll think of his name here in a second, um, but um, he said that uh, Kennedy came in and was with Secret Service protection, and uh, Jackie was there. And he said hello to everybody as he walked through the lobby. Johnson walked right by. Uh, well, Johnson came in afterwards, uh, but yeah, Johnson came in like a you know a couple minutes later. Had his collar pulled up, his hat down. Didn't no you know say hi to anybody. Nothing. Just went straight to the elevator and up. And then uh, Riles was his name, the uh, the manager on duty that night. I talked to, uh, I believe it's his son. I talked to, but. Uh, he said that uh, later on, uh, a few minutes later, like 15 minutes later, um, um, that he came back down. Uh, no, I'm sorry, not 15 minutes later. That like at 1:30 in the morning, he came back down uh, with a Secret Service agent, and again he had his collar pulled up and his hat down, and uh, it was raining out, and he went outside to supposedly smoke a cigarette. Well, back in '63, you could have smoked in the room. So, but he left and he said like five minutes later, he came back in and he had uh, a different top coat on, um, you know, it wasn't pulled up, but more importantly, a different secret service agent uh, came in the building with him the, the second time. Um, and so Ryle said right then and there uh, that he believed that Johnson had an alias, a double that was in the room originally that came in at like 11 o'clock at night, right after JFK, but then at 1.30 went down to smoke and then actual Johnson came in with a, another Secret Service agent. And I used that as a time frame to allow for LBJ to be at the uh, Murchison party uh, the night before. So, and ironically, his, um, his body double was his uh, first cousin, Jay Burke Peck, who looked exactly like LBJ. Uh, spoke exactly like uh, LBJ. Um, and uh, he was ironically killed by uh, uh, John Liggett uh, later on. Um, but uh, uh, the second person that was able to confirm that story uh, about a body double and being um, given, given Johnson time to be at the Murchison party uh, was Billy Saul Essie's. Billy Saul Essie's put the same information in uh, his autobiography that his daughter uh, released. I remember you saying that on your first episode about the, the Johnson story. Um, I mean, where, I guess if you could include one other thing in your book, what would it be? Um, probably on uh, JFK Jr. How, again, the media lied about his flight path. They lied about his, um, 
um, abilities as a pilot. Um, they, they lied about um, the investigation. Um, the investigation was headed up by the, uh, the Coast Guard of all people, not the NTSB, not the FAA, uh, obviously the Coast Guard, because evidently the ocean caused that plane to fall out of the sky. Uh, we don't know how, but apparently waves, the ocean... Waves can reach up that high. I didn't know that. Yeah, 2,600 feet all day long. Called tsunami. Yeah. Uh, but uh, they were put in charge of it. And, you know, they tried to... They lied about his flight path. They claimed that he went over open water, which he did not do. Um, I have the actual flight path in the book. And uh, all airplanes, including his, the uh, Piper Saratoga... I uh, have what is called a glide ratio. And I believe on his plane, it was six to one, which means for every thousand feet in the air, he can glide for a minute. So at 6,000 feet, uh, you know, he, he can basically uh, go along the coast of uh, New England, like he was doing, uh, you know, Connecticut and Rhode Island, and then the last 20 or 30 miles over to Martha's Vineyard, even if the plane had lost power, uh, he could have basically coasted the, the plane back to land. Now, granted, it would have been a horrible night landing, um, but, uh, you know, they lied about his flight path. They lied about his um, abilities as a pilot. They The entire time they tried to claim, well, he wasn't uh, uh, flight instrument rated. Uh, you know, he, he was only approved for visual flight. Well, the reason reason why he wasn't flight instrument rated was he was 1.3 hours short of taking the test. Okay. He, he had already passed all these other um, tests with uh, certified flight instructors that would have got him uh, his uh, flight instrument rating. But again, that they lied about that. Um, they lied about um, the uh, tail section of the plane was not intact. And in fact, if you look at pictures from the time uh, when they're bringing the plane up, um, there's pieces of the plane everywhere, but there's no tail section of the plane. And he had called into um, the, uh, oh, they also lied about the weather conditions, uh, claiming that, you know, he was flying into hazy and horrible weather conditions, which is just the opposite. He took off in the worst conditions and the further he went east, the better the conditions got. Um, I have, um, uh, a person that was, uh, working the tower at Martha's Vineyard that night, uh, admitting that there was eight to 10 miles of visibility, uh, the night that he crashed, he radioed into Martha's Vineyard. He was on final approach at 2,600 feet. And, um, you know, five minutes later when he's supposed to land, he doesn't land, and the airport just arbitrarily decides to close at 10 o'clock and not send anybody out to look for him. Um, you know, a search party wasn't initiated until about 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, and uh, when asked about it with the NTSB, the NTSB person that was initially in charge of the uh, accident said, oh, it happens all the time. You know, people radio in that they're about to land, and then at the last minute, they change their mind and go somewhere else. Bullshit. That doesn't happen. How many times have you been uh, flying from Maryland to uh, uh, Cincinnati and at the last minute, you know, you're, you're seeing the ground, you see the Ohio River, and you're about to land, but the pilot comes on and says, you know what? 
we're going to go up to Cleveland instead. You know, it just doesn't happen. Um, you know, so again, they just, they lied about everything. Um, there, there was, uh, where his plane was being, the pieces were being taken to, to recreate what it, uh, you know, looked like at the, at the time of the crash was all boarded, uh, up and nobody could, could actually see what was going on. Uh, I have an FBI, uh, person that got assigned to the case that was, uh, going in and manipulating the evidence. I mean, they, they just lied and lied and lied about everything about the man. Um, you know, try to make it look like, you know, then they, the, the first lies that they tried telling was, well, you know, he had just gotten his leg out of a cast. And so he probably couldn't control the rudders properly. You know, he could set the emergency brake on a car. Okay. That requires more stress on the ankle than controlling the rudders of a plane. I brought in, uh, Damon Isay on this because he's a, a pilot that's uh, flown in and out of, you know, Martha's Vineyard hundreds, hundreds of times. Um, so again, that's the biggest thing I would say is just the manipulation and the lies and the JFK Jr. crash. Cause he, you know, I had, I was friends with, uh, I knew John Perry Barlow, one of his friends. And he said that, you know, in 2000, he was either going to run for the Senate or for the presidency. And he had enough information um, in George magazine um, about his own father's death, and he was about to break that case open again. So again, he just had too too much information and was a threat to the powers that be. I'll um have to have you back on to talk about the JFK Jr. Because like I said, I've been slowly from the JFK to the RFK, haven't gotten really farther anywhere else, but. We'll talk about that one next for sure. Um, Gary, but where you give me enough of your time, where can people find your links and um, anything you'd like to promote? Uh, you know, the, 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 the best way of getting a hold of any information. And again, you don't even have to buy anything. A lot of it's for free is go to www.thejfkassassination.com. It's got all the information on all of my work uh, with Tim and Damon, uh, all of our books, um, the documentary film, The Innocence of Oswald. I'm currently working on the documentary film, JFK, Mark for Death. Um, speaking in Dallas again this year. Um, I'm speaking on Operation Mockingbird. I'm, I believe I'm the first speaker at the conference at the JFK Historical Group in Dallas on the uh, 16th through the 19th in Dallas. And um, I'm also on a panel with uh, William Claver and uh, Gary Shaw and a few other people on the uh, RFK uh, assassination. Uh, so I'll be there and then I'm doing a, uh, uh, a book signing, uh, in Kentucky, Lexington, Kentucky area in a couple weeks. So all that information is available on the website. Okay. I'm gonna link all those in the description. Thanks everybody for listening to this episode about the blank. Stay tuned for our next episode.